You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 5th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 5th of October 2019. This is Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Today, another week in Westminster and in Manchester to where the Conservative Party shuttle back and forth for their party conference. Also coming up, we'll examine why the new president of the EU Commission is shopping for a camp bed. All that in the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to Studio One. It's Emma Nelson here. And this week in British politics, well, we've seen a rather u- unusual turn insofar as it's had two geographical locations to play with. The governing Conservative Party held its annual conference in the northwestern city of Manchester this week. It's an event that usually happens when Parliament isn't sitting. But Parliament is sitting, with MPs having voted to reject a mini-recess. Well, splitting themselves geographically all week have been my studio guest, Mary Bion, who's a correspondent for French language media, and Carol Walker, the presenter and political journalist. Welcome both to the studio. Good morning. Um, right, who was where this week? Where, what, what, is your, what are your train ticket receipts say that you did this week? I think we were both in Manchester yeah. uh, for the delights of the Conservative Party conference and then whizzing back as the uh, Brexit row continued. I bet the West Coast Mainline trains were an interesting place to be. <laughs> full busy. Of, busy, full of the same kind of creatures heading up and down the lines. Uh, right, so tell us a little bit more about, if someone could briefly explain why we had two simultaneous locations this week. I mentioned a moment ago it's because MPs had rejected the mini-recess from Parliament, but this was all connected to the to the biggest, bigger issue of proroguing the week before. Who, who wants to have a go at that? Well, this was the traditional Conservative Party conference which went ahead despite the fact that uh, Boris Johnson lost comprehensively in the Supreme Court and thus Parliament was sitting, which is unusually unusual. In normal times, um, there is a recess. Parliament is suspended during all three party conferences of all the three main political parties here in the UK. Um, but despite that, um, quite a few MPs managed to find their way to Manchester, as did most senior ministers for a while at least. And, of course, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And in a sense, this was all about rallying the troops within his own party. So Boris Johnson, who only a year ago was the darling of the conference fringe, was, of course, the main event in the main hall. And the overwhelming theme of his speech was, we're going to deliver Brexit. We're going to leave the EU on October the 31st. And then we, the Conservatives, are going to deliver all the sorts of things that you want, which is billions of extra money for lots of new hospitals, um, lots more police, much tougher line on law and order, extra money for schools, all those lovely things that we can give you, uh, just so long as we can get Brexit done. Well, th- this, was this, um, this was this astonishing week of promises, wasn't it, Marie Bion? Um, the NHS was going to be, the, the, the National Health Service was going to be fixed in an instant with a, with a shed load of new hospitals that all seem to be in marginal electoral seats um we were going to get more police officers all these things that the conservative party up to now said we can't afford because of austerity that was out of the window but there was no real sign as to where all this wonderful money was going to come from to pay for it all 
No, no. I, I think the fees was was adding up uh, during the week, and in the end, it doesn't it doesn't in the end make so, so much sense. But basically, because we know that the government wants to be, uh, you know, taken out of of, of office, uh, we know that it's you know it's electoral pledges more than government uh, pledges. So I don't think people would take it very seriously. And one other thing, I was interested. You were talking about the fridge, Carol. The last year and the other years, when you went to the conference, basically there was one there were one uh, event or a few events you went if you wanted to have a bit of a you know of a laugh or something of a relax a bit and it was the Boris Johnson uh, fringe events this time it, it, it there were no of course fringe events of Boris Johnson and the main event was they were hoping that the members were hoping it w- there would be a bit of banter and humor but uh, they were basically uh awaiting the speech of a man who they knew had become a very divisive figure before, uh, whereas before it was more like a, you know, kind of a un- unify, ca- unifying candidate because, or person because he was, um, although he was very controversial as well, but I mean, in, in within the members, he kind of have a profile that made you think that if you wanted to have a good time, you went there. That wasn't there this year. So basically they had to go to the substance to try and cheer people up. And because because people, even the conservative members, are fed up with Brexit, they had to do all this, you know, these pledges for police, for education and all that to remind the people that conservative party is not just about Brexit, but also about a very conservative uh, agenda. So I don't think it really filtered through um, outside in the media because, of course, uh, Brexit was taking everything over. And the fact that uh, all those money was basically thrown in in all directions means that they have... <laughs> I think even the journalists lost count of how much it would add up to in the end. What was the atmosphere like? And uh, Marie has just spoken about the idea of the fringe becoming the centre part. But um, someone once said that this is the um, it, party conferences of whatever um, political um, organisation are generally where those who are the most devoted may almost make their annual pilgrimage to go and uh, be amongst themselves. Who is a Conservative Party devotee at the moment? Because I think you had different experiences of who they might have been. Well, it's interesting that despite all the government's difficulties, and, you know, we went into this conference after the government had suffered six pretty serious defeats in the House of Commons. Um, There was then the previous week this devastating Supreme Court ruling, which ruled that the Prime Minister had broken the law when he tried to prorogue Parliament. And yet, the activists were largely in pretty good form. People said to me, oh, so much better than last year, um, when Theresa May was their leader. And they felt that they were lacking direction. They weren't sure where they were going. The activists broadly are very pro-Brexit. They liked the fact that the message they got from the Prime Minister and all the other senior ministers were, we're going to get Brexit done. We're going to go there. We're going to get out there. We've got a brighter future for you. you." Um, Although there is this sense that, as you say, 
party conferences uh, are always somewhat unreal. And I thought this year, more than ever, there was this sense that you were in this bubble where they all believed in themselves and they all believed in this mission and they all believed it was going to happen. Um, But this was completely removed from the practicalities facing them, um, which include the fact that a law has been passed requiring Boris Johnson to ask for a further extension, which neither he nor the majority of the party want to see. And there was this sense in which they were using this week to try to galvanise themselves, I think, for the next stage, albeit that is going to be a very difficult one. So these are young, sort of the young bucks of the Conservative Party who are super super engaged with social media and and we saw them all sort of like whooping Boris Johnson in the in the audience, you saw a different side. Right? I, I saw the very enthusiastic members after the Boris Johnson speech. I saw many of them and even Stanley Johnson lurking around the media to make sure that he would put his point across that his son was a good guy and all that. So it was very funny to have Stanley Johnson, you know, staying close to the media. Can I be interviewed? Although he didn't ask, of course, but that was very, very much the, <laughs> the aim. Uh, and uh, he even talked to me in French. So I think he was very happy to do that. Um, um, but yes, before that, I made a few vox pops and trying to basically feel the sense of the ambience of the conference. So I had the devotees and mainly young bucks, as you said, were very, you know, proud of their party being a lot. Uh, one started saying, oh, we are now the working class party and all that. So I thought, yes, that's uh, OK. If you uh, that, 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 if that's what you want to put forward. OK. Um, but I also met a few other people who were a bit less enthusiastic. For example, I met uh, um, older the couple and they said that they just took their card to the to the party six months ago and they said it was before they thought that they because they thought the party was dying so they wanted to be part of it before it just died so I, I didn't feel it was very enthusiastic as an answer and there were a lot of people also saying that uh, we uh, are now a party that's plagued by Brexit and uh, that they wanted basically to be there to go to the events that were not about Brexit to show that there was interest in other things as well so the enthusiasm yes perhaps more than you would find in the street. But also, I thought it was kind of a lot of doom and gloom in in the corridors of the Central Hall. I think what's interesting and what you don't necessarily see in most of the main media coverage of the big events, which are inevitably dominated by this Brexit argument, is that there is a lot of other stuff that goes on on the fringe. Um, There were lots of quite enthusiastic um, meetings. I chaired a couple. People were talking about how to revive our small towns. What is the future of farming? um, How we can have sustainable agriculture? What the future is for the health service? How you can um, devolve more power? What the future is for our economy, for the environment? And although none of that is going to get mainstream coverage, it's not necessarily going to grab the headlines. I think what's interesting is that, yes, this is a rarefied group of people, but there are a lot of people there with some quite interesting ideas, with some uh, interesting new and imaginative proposals about the way that the country could change. Whether any of this is going to fight its way through the Brexit fog, of course, is another matter. Well, unfortunately, the Brexit fog absolutely landed heavily on uh, Westminster this weekend. In fact, in the last 24 hours, we had uh, two rather conflicting messages coming out, emerging about what is exactly is going to happen. Now, let's just recap. We have the United Kingdom scheduled to leave by the, 30, the EU by the 31st of October. However, 
It has to be established by is it the 19th of October whether a deal has or has not been done between the EU and the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson has said that he would rather die in a ditch than leave later than the 31st of October. However, a parliamentary act called the Ben Act has made it impossible for the United Kingdom, in theory, to do that um, unless a deal has, if a deal has not been reached. So basically, we can't leave the EU without a deal on the 31st of uh, October. So we have Boris Johnson saying with one breath, we're leaving on the 31st of October, yet court papers have suggested that Boris Johnson will write to the EU to ask for an extension. What's all that about? Who wants to go at that one? Mary, oh, you start with this one. Because you said we can't leave without a deal on the 31st of October. That's not true. That's, of course, something <laughs> that we forget a lot from the UK, is that there has to be an anonymous OK by the 27, saying, yes, we can give you an extension. And there's two things. At the moment, in France, they don't really are, they're not really positive about saying yes to an extension because they are fed up with it and they think that at some point you just have to make a decision, it's a make or break, and perhaps now is the time whether and are waiting for the 31st of January. So there's that. And of course, there's the strategy that the Telegraph flagged yesterday is that maybe indeed Boris Johnson is right on the to, uh, declaration. Yes, he will obey the law and he will ask for a um, for a extension. We know now that it's not, it's not going to be too painful for him in the polls if he does that. So he's, he basically feels like he can do it if he really has to. And if he's seen being, you know, kicked and, and dragged to do that, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, we cannot, uh, we can leave without a deal on the 31st of October because one uh, one country is enough to uh, make us, uh, you know, make us do that, make the UK do that. And the Daily Telegraph is saying that perhaps Hungary will be the one to do that, and that Boris Johnson is tabling on uh, Hungary to basically say no, we don't want an extension. Now that's something that's you know uh, what the Daily Telegraph doesn't say is that the Hungary, although a kind of a Eurosceptic country, um, uh, has no you know, would not benefit from that because they want to have, uh, you know, still the same backing from the rest of the European counterparts. They want to play their part in the EU concept of nation. And if they did that, clearly, because it would go against what Ireland would want and what the 26 other would want, it would be kind of a pariah uh, within the EU uh, concept of nation. So uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really add up. And in the end, although Boris Johnson may be right on two fronts, saying, I will ask for an extension and I won't break, and I won't break the law, but we won't have a deal and we can leave. Uh, there's one that, even if it's not coming from him, that won't work. That's simple, isn't it? I mean, let's just have a look at, at what our prospects are then from here in the United Kingdom. Carol, what are your thoughts about how Boris Johnson thinks that we can leave without asking for an extension, but with or without a deal in two weeks? Well, it is difficult to see at this stage, but I think it's worth looking at what that legal submission to the Scottish court actually said yesterday. It said he will send a letter in the form set out in the schedule of this act that was put through by uh, Boris Johnson's opponents in the House of Commons. Um, that simply means that he will send a letter. Now, there's this idea that, oh, maybe we can get Hungary to, to block it. Um, there's another idea that he could sort of send another letter that said, you know that letter that I just sent you because I'm required to do it? Well, forget that because we don't want an extension. And if we do, we're going to make the life for the rest of the EU absolute hell. <laughs> um, there is also, of course, the question of... Um, 
further legal challenges because set alongside this act, which was only passed in the last couple of weeks, is the Article 50 legislation, which at the moment says that the default position is that the UK does leave the EU uh, on October the 31st. Now, Boris Johnson last night tweeted, new deal or no deal, but no delay. Uh, All these ideas are being kicked around. Of course, there is the possibility that he could get a deal. Um, We've had new proposals also floated this week. They haven't gone down well um, in the EU, particularly in Ireland, but they haven't stopped talking about them yet. So there is just the slimmest possibility of some kind of agreement. Um, But I think where, where we're heading is further legal clashes. And I think that the the hope in Downing Street, and I'm sure they're going to be consulting all kinds of uh, lawyers on this, is that perhaps they can prolong the legal wrangling over the recent Benn Act long enough that Article 50 ensures that we somehow just get out the other side of October the 31st. But frankly, if, if you talk to anyone, including Downing Street insiders, nobody has a clear answer to how this conflict is going to be resolved. So the communication isn't exactly clear from number 10. It's uh, 9.16 here in London. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson, Mary Bion and Carol Walker. Now, it takes a while when you're in a new job to settle in, especially if you're in a new city away from your family. Now, most organisations offer either an apartment or a hotel room to keep you comfortable, fed and dry. Well, the newly appointed European Commission President-elect Ursula von der Leyen has shown real commitment to her job. She's not set up in a hotel or an apartment. She's got her own private rooms inside the Commission's Brussels headquarters. And when I mean private rooms, I probably mean a room measuring a cosy 25 square metres just a few steps away from her office. This is commitment, isn't it, Marie? Well, she's known for that. I mean, she did that when she was working at the uh, Defence Ministry uh, in uh, in Germany. So it has the, you know, the uh, the idea that it's going to be less expensive for the taxpayer if she doesn't have an apartment or a rent and a flat, uh, hotel flat, I don't know how you say it in English, like uh, Juncker is doing, is still doing or used to do, basically. And uh, the, the fact that she will be basically on hand any, any time of the day. Of course, there's the idea also that... That she's, you know, staying. I mean, will she? When will she go out? When will she see the light of day? If she uh, stays in her office and just go along the corridor to go to bed, will she be able to, you know, go and have a meal out with uh, with colleagues? Because we know that socializing is also very important in any kind of job. And testing the waters with other people, even informally, is very important for her job as well. So, Carol, do you think we should be sending Ursula von der Leyen um, vitamin D tablets to try and help her from her exposure from from the sunlight? Well, she probably does need to get out and this idea of being on call 24 hours a day sounds like an absolute nightmare but of course she is saying that she's also going to be travelling back to her main residence in Hanover and of course she's got a husband and seven children so maybe in part this is an idea that she needs um, Frankly, a if little I had seven bit children, of a breather from them. Yeah, well. quite, I, 25 metres would be you know, heaven <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think it's it's worth um, pointing out that she's not the only person who, who does this. We've had lots of incidences here in the UK of MPs sleeping in their offices. Um, there was a big scandal over MPs' uh, expenses uh, nine or ten years ago. And a lot of MPs then were uh, no longer allowed to claim an overnight allowance for staying in London. And of course, they represent um, constituencies and often have uh, offices and families and homes in the areas that they represent. Um, 
Um, but they were they were then not allowed to claim overnight expenses in London. And a lot of them were caught out sleeping in their offices, including the housing minister at the time, who was also responsible for homelessness, Grant Shapps. Uh, and he said that it was simply impractical for him to get back to his constituency and then come back the next day. And indeed, the houses of parliament authorities had to write to MPs saying, um, guys, it's not actually in, it's a bit of a breach of health and safety rules. You shouldn't really be sleeping in your offices. Um, but I think these were MPs trying to show that, uh, trying to show that they were committed to the cause. But um, Ursula van der Leyen's got a huge job uh, on hand. And um, I, I suspect that her ensuite um, apartment probably has something a little bit better than a, than a fold-up bed. And it's, But it's, it's no better than what Jean-Claude Juncker has complained about. I mean, the outgoing president of the commission uh, complained that um, he couldn't entertain people uh, in his hotel bedroom, because obviously that wouldn't be very good. And and, uh, and talked about how uh, when he was called to uh, have dinner with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, um, apparently Jens Stoltenberg had a schloss. He had a castle. Um, how important is it for the EU to say we're not housing our ministers and our on our on our our dignitaries in in glorious castles, but you get the equivalent of a camp bed and a sink. Well, yes. Well, I mean, I, I, again, I don't think it's going to be exactly like that, even even for her. But yes, it's important to have this uh, kind of a northern uh, uh, w- frame of mind in terms of the expenses of the people that are working for you. Because, uh, you know, with, with Brexit in particular, we've been hearing all, all these unelected people who are making decisions for us. And we just one step away to all these ele- unelected people who are making decisions for us and are grabbing our taxpayer money to live in castles. So it's very important that it doesn't over overwhelmingly go uh, go to that direction although we are already largely pointing towards to it so yes it's it's i mean it's communication uh, it's marketing in a way but uh, the eu has to think more in general about marketing itself that's very important if they don't want brexit to happen in other countries so if we start with that uh, individual you know uh, being uh, sacrificing themselves basically in that way i don't think it's a bad story for the eu I think it may well play, except that what you have to remember is that all these other EU leaders, I mean, they love all the diplomatic trappings. You know, they're all delighted if they're invited into the Elysee Palace and given a good lunch with some fine French wines. And things like that do perhaps... um, oil the wheels of diplomacy. So I'm sure in the big picture, the EU is wise to set out this message that it's it's not wasting the money of uh, those that are, that are paying for our Eurocrats. But I, I just wonder whether, you know, perhaps on this Jean-Claude Juncker um, has a point. Uh, I should point out, though, um, many politicians, of course, love all those extra trappings. Boris Johnson, when he was foreign secretary, of course, enjoyed, as you get in the UK, um, a very palatial house in Carlton House Terrace in in um, the centre of London, as well as a country retreat. And indeed, even after he resigned from the government um, over the previous prime minister's approach to Brexit, um, it took him an awfully long time to move out. In fact, it was about three weeks after he'd resigned before he was finally managed to, they finally managed to get the removal vans to get his staff out of his, the palatial foreign secretary's residence.
You were talking about the Elysée Palace and I think it's very interesting because a few weeks ago we had the Journée du Patrimoine so people were able to go to the Elysée Palace and, and all, the, all the places and visit it and people were absolutely flabbergasted when they saw one of the uh, living room in the Elysée Palace there's many of them uh, one which is called the uh, Salon uh, Pompadour from the, the name of a mistress of a form of an uh, old king basically and it used to be very Rococo style so lots of you know velvet and flowers and and golden thingy and all that and in the middle of that they just took out the uh, the chairs and the table uh, but the Macron decided to put a very uh, very you know high tech sofa with a TV and with a, a a table for cocktails and behind you can see instead of a very you know uh, countryside uh, landscape painting that would have been there they have a very modern art uh, I don't. I can't remember I which think one it's it Miro. is. Bureau. Bureau. That's yeah. it. Yes. Well, it's, basically, it's not the mirror, but may I say it from a perspective of style, it's vile. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not picturesque. Let's say. Like, let's put it like that. And in the middle of this rococo style, because it wasn't painted over, you can still see the flowers over over there. Uh, it's very, very, you know, oh, it's very it? clashing. Yeah, it looks like a it looks like a spaceship's landed in it. It's quite astonishing. I recommend everyone go and have a look at it now and then close your eyes for a second to 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 it, let the whole impact hit you. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio, Mary Bion, correspondent for French language media, and Carol Walker, the presenter and political journalist. Coming up next, a quick look at the newspapers. Tune in now to Mitty Class by Chanel on Monocle Twenty Four. Join us over five fascinating episodes as we explore the craftsmanship, precision, artistry and design philosophy of the House of Chanel with its family of collaborators. The season began in homage to the late, great Karl Lagerfeld, who for decades stood for the best of a brand with a truly unique heritage. We heard two from Chanel fashion president Bruno Pavlovsky, and you can hear more from some of those who know this storied brand better than anyone else, as Farrell Williams and Lady Amanda Harlick join Monocle's editor Tyler Brule to tell him more about the inner workings of the fashion house. Tune in at monocle.com via our app and other channels or on Chanel's 355 podcast at iTunes. Meteor Class by Chanel on Monocle 24. Listen now. Welcome back to Monocle's House View. Joining me in the studio, Marie Bion and Carol Walker. Marie, what have you found in the papers this weekend? So there's two stories. One very obvious one, uh, the one on Hong Kong, basically, and things getting uh, more complicated over there with the uh, Chinese authority doubling down on the uh, restriction imposed on the Hong Kong people. Uh, a few hours ago yesterday, uh, the, uh, the face mask was, uh, f- was basically uh, forbidden for uh, protesters to wear. And of course, more and more of them were starting to wear those face masks because they were more and more worried about the fact that there could be retaliation uh, from the Chinese authorities. And yesterday evening, although uh, the ban was in place, they decided to go all out in the street with the face mask and there were uh, a lot of violence again. And basically um, what the Guardian is saying is that it's the first time uh, since the end of the colonial era that powers that dating from the colonial era are being used by the Chinese government. So 
although yesterday, for example, at the news night on the BBC, there was the uh, the ambassador from China in the UK being interviewed, saying, "No, we still have control of the situation. Everything is going okay." It looks very much like with two young people uh, having been shot with uh, bullets and uh, the uh, protests going, you know, more violent by the day and the um, doubling down of the government uh, reaction uh, also growing fiercer and fiercer. It doesn't look like it's a situation that's being basically handled uh, with uh, with mastery. And uh, what have you found in the papers this morning? Uh, well, front page of the Telegraph and an awful lot of the other tabloids in the UK is the story about um, Prince Harry stepping up his press war over a phone hacking claim. Now, Prince Harry has decided that he's going to go to court over phone hacking. What's extraordinary about this is that this is going back to uh, events that happened well over a decade ago. And he has decided now to try and revive it. And we we know that he's already sent um, a furious statement uh, and his wife, Meghan, is already taking another court action over uh, a paper which published uh, a letter that she wrote to her father. But what is extraordinary is that this was a really big row in the UK about the behaviour of the media. Um, There were uh, two uh, journalists, well, a journalist and um, a private investigator who were jailed um, back in 2007 uh, for phone hacking. And a group of newspapers have paid out at least 500 million. It's thought it's going to end up being more than that to victims of phone hacking. And now Prince Harry has decided that he is going to try to sue the newspapers over this. Now, there are legal questions about whether he's already left it too late. But of course, the newspapers are all saying, look, this is done and dusted. We have changed our behaviour. The people in charge of those papers at the time, many of them have been forced out of their jobs. One of the papers involved, the News of the World, has already closed down. And I think it will be interesting to see how this plays out because... Much as the royal family are very popular in the UK, um, whether people still like to read stories about the royal family, will they think it's right that the press are being too intrusive and Harry is right to take them on? Or will they think, well, look, hang on, we have a free press. They should be allowed within reason, so long as they obey the laws, um, to get on and report the stories. Carol Walker and Mary Beyond. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it here. Thanks for your company in the studio today. And uh, that's all we have time to. Thanks to our supervising producer, Ben Ryland, our researcher, Naomi Potter, and our studio manager, Sam Impey. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much indeed for listening and have a good weekend. <laughs>